0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold The Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gundog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T-Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force-free gundog training, The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazons everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force-free gundog training, and i hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months we'll see that's all for now let's get on with the show Train your gun dog without force or fear, motivate and educate, hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation, hold the line, oh yeah. Hello and happy new year to you all. I'm sorry there's been a slight delay in podcast episodes recently. I've just been really busy creating a new online course which you can actually check out if you go to my website forcefreegundog.com. The new course is called focus and attention. So it's intended to be for people who struggle to get their dogs focus and attention obviously um, out and about in distracting environments but perhaps also maybe people who just find it difficult to even leave their house and maintain focus from their dog so go check it out Um, that is my kind of announcement this year we're still working on the workbook for my to accompany my book, uh, Force-Free Gundog Training, The Fundamentals for Success. So the workbook is very nearly ready. It should be ready in about a week or so. Just having a few kind of layout issues to do with the printing and stuff. Very boring. But anyway, that should be out very soon. Anyway, happy new year. Let's hope that this year is a much better year than last year for us all. So to kick us off this year, I have a super part interview. So... I'm going to introduce you all to Josephine Locke and Jo has gun dogs. she has Labradors and they are working dogs, but they don't work doing gun dog work, if that makes sense. So that's because Jo runs an organisation called Knows No Limits, which is spelt Nose N-O-S-E like the dog's nose and no limit. So you can also check out her website, which is KnowsNoLimit.com. So Nose No Limit aims to support environmental research and conservation work through training detection dogs. So the dogs, for example, can help protect native habitat by finding invasive species. They can help preserve endangered species by locating those species so that they can be studied or protected. They can monitor elusive or reintroduced species through detecting scat or feces, and through analysing that, getting data about the range of those species, the diet and the health. Um, And they can even detect diseases by locating bacteria or fungal infections or parasites that threaten flora or fauna. So it's, I think it's a whole new world, really, for working dogs. This is very interesting. Jo has a background in search and rescue, which she's been deeply involved in with her dogs before moving into conservation work. So she's very involved in scent work generally and in the dog's use of their nose to locate stuff in other ways. Jo's from the UK originally, but in 2011, she moved to the US with her husband and her young son and her Labrador. And we do talk about that a little bit in the interview. So, here is Joe. Hold the line. Welcome to Hold the Line. Um, it's really good to have you on the show. Thank you very much for coming to talk to us. So, I just thought maybe we should sort of introduce you a little bit and talk a little bit about your background because you clearly have a British accent, but you live in America. Um, and so, I thought kind of explaining some of that and how it came about and your dogs and the various dogs that you 've had that might be a good way to to sort of start uh,
1: yes hi um thank you so much i'm um I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me so yeah i i guess i'm kind of a, a relative newcomer to the world of dog training compared to you uh but so we we i am british uh born and um not raised in Britain, I actually uh, grew up in Bahrain. That's another story. But
0: um, wow. I
1: was, yeah, I was born in in England um, and lived there till I was about five, and then we moved to Bahrain, um, and then moved back. And um, my first dog, uh, she's now fourteen. She's she's still with us here. Um, was uh, we got her in in the UK, and she was from a, a line of field trial champions. Um, from a local breeder who was actually um, also a gamekeeper and uh, in charge of some of the local shoots, um, and that was a world I, I knew nothing about and still know very little about, really. Um, but well, we she's got a this, Labrador. She's a right? black yeah. Labrador, yeah. Black Labrador, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we got her, and so obviously she was fairly high energy. Although um, when we when we went to see the litter, there was. Um, some of the litter had already gone and there was a few puppies left. And when she came out to um, to, to greet us, she, she kind of waddled over and then she sat down to drink out of a bowl of water. And we were like, we'll take that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, I wasn't in those days involved in any kind of sports or anything. So we were looking for a dog that was going to fit into our home and our lifestyle and um, – So she was the first and I started like most people do, um, really just going to puppy classes and reading books and trying to make sense of of the world of dog training and getting some good advice and some bad advice and trying to pick my way through it. And I think at the time I had it in mind that I was going to get involved in something, but that whole plan kind of went by the wayside when I myself got pregnant when Brenna was still quite young. Um, and so I was then kind of otherwise occupied, uh, looking after a small child. And then we moved to America, uh, in 2011, um, by then Brenna was maybe, I think three, uh, three or four. Um, and so we, we, we'd been here, um, just over a year when I decided that we were going to have a litter of puppies. So Brenna was kind of five and a half, I think by then because I'd started to get some of my time back and my son was um, going to preschool for a few days a week. So uh, we bred a litter and I did have it in mind then that I was going to do something with one of the puppies, but I didn't know quite what at that point. Um, So I went looking again for another Labrador with with good pedigree and some field trial lines. Um, But again, I was looking mainly at the time for... Temperament, you know. I wanted a, you know, a, a calm um, temperament to match to match Brenner's. Uh, we bred the litter, and I kept a dog. And the sort of long and the short story is that uh, I then got into search and rescue, um, and I've been doing that now for eight years with with Willow. Uh, and um, and in recent years, um, I've I've now branched out into conservation work, and we do um, we, we do a different type of search work. Um, sort of simultaneously at the same time. Um, And over the years, I've got more and more interested in um, behaviour analysis and training theory and have, you know, gone down that, very deeply down that rabbit hole, uh, attending numerous courses and seminars and conferences and, you know, reading, you know all the papers and all of the books that I can get my hands on, um, which has kind of brought me to where I am now. And I'm kind of on the cusp now of maybe uh, looking for the next puppy and the next uh, the next search dog. And this time it won't be, um, it, it'll be a dog that I get from a breeder rather than a, a litter that I breed myself. So it's, you know, it's stepping into a whole new world that I so, haven't so tried what, before.
0: I was going to say, what led you to decide not to, breed willow and then keep you know like he bred Runner rather than getting a puppy in
1: well um I actually did um want to breed willow um and um I looked into it and I was I was all sort of set to do it and then we we actually moved to Los Angeles for two years and we lived in a house a rented house there which and we had we had to make sp- uh, special um adjustments to the contract uh to allow us to have the two dogs because initially they didn't want animals in the house um but when they discovered that i was a trainer and that that, the dogs were well one of the dogs was a working dog um in search and rescue and they understood that they they were well trained they kind of made allowances but that we had a limit we weren't allowed anymore um and so by the time we we actually moved back to indianapolis um uh, willow was getting to the point where i was i was nervous about her age um but I did get her checked out and went through all the health checks, and the vet the vet, the vet said actually that it would be fine. But when I came to actually try and organise it, um, she didn't come into heat as scheduled. Um, she she was a lot later than she was um, than she was <clears throat> predicted to come into heat. Um, and then when she <clears throat> sorry when she did come into heat, um, we were in the middle of a about a snowstorm and the sire that I'd picked out was actually down in Tennessee, which was um, about 12 hour drive. Um, right. And it was just, it, I just thought, okay, this is not supposed to happen. <laughs> so yeah, I just canned the idea.
0: Right. Right. And so, but you did have, with your first list when you read Brennan was, how did you choose that stud dog? Because obviously you presumably had a very sort of, um, a breeding, a pedigree that was very British. And so how did you go about finding a stud dog? It was presumably a very big outcross, presumably the stud dog was American, was that right?
1: Yes. Uh, yes, that's correct. He, He was, um, well, um, I didn't know quite as much as I do now. So a lot of it was more luck than, than, um, than skill really, but I had, I had some kind of notion about what I was looking for. Um, and <clears throat> I was, um, I was kind of primarily concerned about, um, features like health and long longevity and, and sort of, um, behavioral tendencies. Um, I was looking for, you know, a certain type of temperament and a certain type of physique. So I was looking for a small, um, you know, a, a, so, A Labrador that was that was a had had field a field trial look to him rather than um, a show dog look to him. So looking for one that was kind of forty to fifty pounds, not you know sixty to a hundred pounds. I was also um, concerned with breeders that were that were breeding responsibly and looking at looking at those kinds of features rather than. One that was primarily concerned with, you know, how straight the tails were or what colour their eyes were, um, and so it was kind of it was kind of like a gut feel um, at the time, based on some of those decisions,
0: really. Right, because you mentioned wanting to to find a dog that was calm or or placid, and is that something that you feel is useful in sort of scent detection work? Or is there a type of Labrador which is too excitable, which you find is is not what you want for that sort of work? Or,
1: well, I have a, I maybe have a different sort of view to some of this stuff. So, you know, in the working world, there is um, there is definitely a tendency at the moment for people to look for dogs that are, as you say, um, have a tendency to be very excitable or energetic, or you know, kind of on that that far end of the spectrum of excitability um whereas I I prefer to start at um more of a kind of like um calm thoughtful predisposition and then build up those motivations rather than try and kind of like bring that energy level back down to something that's manageable
0: right is that due to experience we trying to train those sorts of more excitable dogs and seeing what happens when you try to do that or... Okay folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com and you can also check out my book Force-Free Gundog Training and the accompanying workbook for it which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So, I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that's the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. Um
1: it's it's kind of based on experience of seeing um, the struggles people go through with those sorts of dogs um, and it's also kind of a practicality in that um, you know one of the things that i need is is not just a dog for for working but also a dog that can fit into a house with children and you know a husband that doesn't want the house you know chewed to pieces and um <laughs> and that kind of thing so it's <laughs> it's 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 kind of trying to balance out those two you know what seems to be on the surface conflicting um t- conflicting things because you know i i think that behavior is much more malleable and you know plastic than we perhaps um you know it's, it it comes back to this kind of thing what do, where do these things reside are they inside the dog or are they outside it? in the environment and in the experiences of the dog and the training of the dog. And I think we can do an awful lot with, as long as you've got like a healthy baseline of genetics and um, you've got a breed that is suited for the type of environment you're going to be working in and the type of thing that you're going to be doing, you can then, um, you can do an awful lot with that, um, with that, and and mold that behavior in the direction you want with and change the motivations of that dog
0: right so and your kind of baseline is to go for the sort of more the calmer dog which then you can work on exciting them and enthusing them and motivating them where you need that um, yeah and how does this fit in now with your new challenge of finding a breeder now to to get your next puppy and how how is that going to work out are you going to let the breeder choose the puppy for you or you will you choose the puppy and if so how will you what are you looking for in that
1: well that's a, that's a good question so um I had a, a breeder uh, picked out who um because I, I'm also kind of keen now to find a breeder that's that has a, a mindset of you know force-free training and I had a breeder picked out for that but again it was a it's a long drive away and the pandemic that um that seemed like that might be quite problematic. So I um, would have it had a um, was contacted by another search and rescue handler who was having a a breed of pup a litter of puppies, um, and so I was going to be able because she was closer to where I <clears throat> to where I live. It was going to give me um, access from an early age potentially, which was appealing, and. Um, and so I was going to go for a puppy from that litter, but it, it looks as though that might not happen now because I literally mm. just had a, a message yesterday to say that uh, the X-ray shows that the litter might only have a singleton in there, uh, in which case that would be the puppy that she would keep. Um, so I'm, I'm waiting to see now when the, when the litter's born if there is actually only one puppy in there or if there's, there's more than one puppy.
0: Right. Oh, that's a shame. I mean, it's not easy to find a breeder that ticks all the boxes, is it? So that has a sort of the, the pedigree and on paper the dogs, the dogs that you want to have a puppy from. And then the breeder themselves and the way they're gonna raise the puppies is gonna raise them in the way, particularly if you're a force-free trainer that you want to see them be raised. And obviously, hopefully the the contact with the breeder is gonna be something that is ongoing throughout the dog's life. They're always going to be there in the background if you need them, and so you kind of don't want them to be on a completely different training philosophy than you are. So it's just hard, isn't it, to find to to put it all together, and probably compromises have to be made somewhere. But it's always in where do you make those compromises, and what is the most important thing?
1: It is really difficult, yeah. And I think um, I think that's an individual decision um, and a set of choices for each individual. Um, I mean, the the, the the breeder that I'm talking about, the search and rescue, she um, is what I guess you would call a balance trainer, um, but she does understand reinforcement and she does use a clicker and, of course, she would never do, you know, corrections with, with you know, puppies under eight weeks. Um, so, and she, she does scent detection and she doesn't just do... Um, Search and rescue. She does bed bug detection, so she uh, and she's, you know, she has she does develop scent dogs that are very, very good at what they do. Um, but she is at the other end of the spectrum in terms, perhaps, as me for me, is uh, looking for dogs that are very high. I am going to use that word that I don't like, drive. So she she does look for she does look for those traits. So there was a certain amount of anxiety um, in me about that because I was like what is that going to look like? And am I going to discover, you know, am I going to now find myself in a situation where I've got the, the raw materials and I've got to start changing, you know, molding that in a different direction? Um, I mean, hopefully now I have more of the knowledge and more skills and experience to do that. But I, I you know, I was going into that with some trepidation um, because it's the opposite of what I've done in the past
0: hmm so what don't you like about that word drive then is it that you don't think it's a good descriptor of the thing we should be looking for and we shouldn't you know we should use another word or, or is it you don't like the thing itself that it describes
1: i think it, it it's kind of confusing i don't know how helpful it is because it's it's first of all it's a label which doesn't get explained and defined very clearly um i mean is it, uh, again, is it inside the animal or is it outside? Is, is drive a genetic predisposition that makes a certain behavioural repertoire more likely in a given individual? Or is it an emotional, is it uh, the descriptor of an emotional response to a certain stimulus? Um, is it a description of specific behavioural responses under specific environmental conditions that are unconditioned? Um, you know what is it? It it, it seems to jump it from one to the other so much when people talk about it. it. It one minute it's inside the animal, and the next minute it's outside the animal, um, and it tends to it tends to put the responsibility for any kind of problem on the animal and not on the trainer. Um, so. Uh, I, I, I can't remember who to attribute this quote to, but I think I I read this somewhere. It says we can't teach an animal what to a dog what to be, but we can teach it teach them what to do. So, you know, is drive what an animal is, or is it what they do?
0: <laughs> hmm. so um, is it like their the personality? There's sort of some sort of ongoing, permanent trait that they have, or is it behaviour?
1: Yeah, exactly. So now now you're getting into some definitions that we do have access to. So, um, I mean, temperament is normally described as um, like a generalised behaviour style. Um, so that, that does suggest, you know, genetic predispositions to certain things. And then personality is normally described as being a result of both genetics and experience over time. So there's some learning in there that, and some flexibility and some things that change over time and can change back again um, and then behavior is is usually described as like a response in a given moment to a certain set of conditions um, so i was actually thinking about this the other day because i was listening to some podcasts about meditation with a lady called manda scott um, and she was talking about um changing habits changing like personal habits using um meditation and she was describing attitude mood temperament and personality and she was using weather as like an analogy so she was saying that attitude is is like the specific weather that's that's happening right now um and it's completely transient so in half an hour it could change again you know the rain could stop or the sun could come out or whatever and then mood she equated to like the weather forecast. So' it's, it's got a certain amount of prediction to it, and it's kind of a, you know set of conditions that you might expect over you know a longer period of time, like a day or a week. And then temperament describes like the season. So now you're talking, uh, talking about um, trends and um, statistics. And then personality she equated to the entire global climate. Um, so I don't know how helpful that analogy is, but, um, you know, if we think about a dog, then personality is kind of the sum total of, of all of, it's, it's the whole dog. It's, it's the whole being it's, um, the genetics plus all their experiences, um, you know, plus their natural tendencies, plus their behavior, plus what's happening in the, in that moment. Plus, you know, you know, behavior can always the behaviour that you see in that moment is always going to be affected by and, um, and you know, sort of evoked by the, the conditions that are there in that moment. And what they do right now in those conditions might not happen next week in those conditions because there are other things at play. There are other motivating operations or other, you know, differences.
0: I think you're saying that if you unpack the word drive, there is actually lots that's, within that word, which we're kind of smooching together into one, one term.
1: Yeah, I really do. I think it, I think it's way more complicated. And I think, you know, adding another term in there, which it's just, you know, as you say, tries to just gather it all up is is not necessarily that helpful. And then, and then you get people talking about all the different types of drive, break, hmm. prey drive, toy drive, food drive, pack drive. I mean, what, what does it all mean?
0: <laughs> hmm. Um so to go back to your dogs, and um, what you do with your dogs now? So it sounds like Brenna is is kind of retired, and she she's fourteen now. You mentioned and yes, so she, is. so she. What did you do with her? You did search and rescue with her, but you didn't uh, do the conservation work. Is that right? Or... I didn't do
1: I didn't do anything with um, working wise with Brenna. Um, she she has just well, I say just she's been a, um, you know wonderful you know family member of the family. Um, and she she was Willow's mother, um, but I'd never done any search and rescue or any search work with her. If I'd have known what I know now and had had the opportunities and, the, and knew the people that I knew now, I would certainly have, um, I certainly would have done. And I think she would have actually been in some ways even better than Willow. Um, she's still... She still sort of outsmarts her daughter with her nose quite regularly when they're searching for food in the grass or, you know, tennis balls in the hedge or whatever. Uh, so Willow, I did search and rescue with, and then I, um, and then I branched out into conservation work. So Willow is still certified as a search and rescue canine. Uh, she has another year left on her certification. I'm not sure if I'm going to renew it this time. I think I might. I might call it a day at that point. I'm not, I'm not sure yet. Um, because we're, you know, we're, we're trying to, um, we're trying to do more and more conservation stuff. Uh, so there's lots of plans in the, on the horizon for, for hopefully more target species to train her to find she will, she'll be eight in December. So that's, that's why I'm starting to think about a new puppy, um, I mean, she's still, um, she's still very fit, very agile, and, and can still, she still has a lot of stamina. So it's not like I'm looking to retire her anytime soon. Um, but I do need to start thinking about training the next one because you know, it, it, uh, it takes a good year, year and a half, two years before you have a dog that um, has all the foundation skills and all the maturity to to be able to do that kind of work um successfully
0: with willow i'm just trying to get it straight so with Willow, you did the search and rescue work and then you moved on to the conservation work but you still do search and rescue with her as well mm-hmm. and th- does she find it easy to move between those two different ways of working because there's presumably different um, sort of requirements i think probably searching rescue involves running further and searching more independently and then the the conservation workers at more closely working with you and how does she manage to move between those different ways of searching i'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause the whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be but i don't have an ad break i just have me and my whistle my trusty t 212 on which i'm going to play you a tune The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out, otherwise it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the, the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend and I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways that you can support me though because otherwise it is just me making this podcast so if you like this podcast there are some simple things and free things that you can do one is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can the other thing you can do will benefit you as well i hope you can check out some of my courses my online platform forcefreegundog.com and you can also check out my book force-free gundog training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's Whistle pause. Let's get back to the show.
1: Well, uh, that's a very good question, and I talked about this on a different podcast. Um, So yeah, they are very, very different. And when I first started the conservation work, I was I was very careful um, because I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to upset and um, uh, I didn't want to to break her search search and rescue work, and I didn't want to confuse her. So I was very careful to separate out uh, the different antecedents. So um, with the conservation work, I have a, a very different uh, cue. Um, and I have a very different way of delivering that cue. So with Search and Rescue, she, I bend down beside her and I, I tell her to, to go search, and we're kind of looking at each other si- side on. Um, when I um, ask her to go searching for conservation um, targets, I stand in front of her and I deliver the cue with a hand gesture um, and, a, and a different word and a different it, it, it looks completely different from her perspective um, and Great. she has different equipment um, the environment's slightly different
0: does she wear a different harness or
1: yeah she wears a harness for search and rescue and a collar for
0: for conservation work and is the conservation work done on leash or is it sort of off leash
1: not usually on leash, but it can be it depends it depends again on where you are and what you're looking for. Um, it, um, it took a while for us to get into the right groove in terms of, um, the the search style, because as you pointed out, search and rescue, she's going much, much further from me. She works kind of more independently. Um, and I needed her to be more, um, uh, sort of deliberate and more controlled and more methodical is the word I was searching for, methodical in her searching pattern um, because we wanted to be able to cover the ground in kind of closer transects and that kind of thing. So I had to learn how to communicate with her. Uh, and it, it, it became, it's hard to describe, but I, I had I had the opportunity to do some, some working in, uh, where we were looking for dead birds and bats under wind turbines. So we were out for like eight, nine hours a day Working turbine after turbine, so I had a lot of a lot of hours searching with her, and I and it was during that time that I really started to refine uh, the body language that I exhibited um, in order to be able to. It's it's almost like um, working on a long line, but it's invisible, and so you know I could turn my shoulders or turn my hips or or change. Changed my body language very subtly to 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 change the direction that she headed in, or the the distance she went from me. And it was it it took a while for for me to kind of start to understand how some of that worked because when you are doing search and rescue, you don't want to influence the dog too much. So, you know, the dog sort of takes off and doesn't, you know, doesn't necessarily, um, you know, look at you too much for information, although um i think they probably look at us for information far more than we realize uh, one of the things i discovered um one night doing search and rescue is um so i you know i had a head torch on my head and it had a red setting and when i had it turned to the red setting and there was nothing else there was no other light available so it was it was pretty dark and all i had was this red light on my on my head what i noticed um when she was like doing these huge sweeping circles around me was that um, she actually flicked her eyes towards me quite regularly and I could see them because every time she kind of like flicked her eyes towards me, I I saw them in the red light. (laughs) And, And I started to realize that, you know, when she's running around and it looks like in daylight, it looks like she's not even aware of where I am and not paying any attention to me at all. I realised when I was watching it at night with the red light that that her, she was actually very cognizant of where I was and my position and which direction we were headed in.
0: So how many years have you, were you doing the search and rescue stuff with her and, and how sort of consolidated was that before you then started to do the, the conservation work? Was that sort of really established and so this new thing you were introducing? It wasn't like you trying to teach two new things at the same time. I'm just wondering, it might be people listening who want to try another way of working their gun dog um, and are interested in getting into search and rescue or conservation work, and but they want to also do gun dog work with their dog. And I know sometimes there's a bit of conflict there like with, with people who, you know, so I've heard search and rescue people say that they don't want their dog to get into looking for game or to learn to search for game. So they will totally avoid everything gun doggy because they find it risky to encourage that in case the dog goes off doing that when... They want them to be doing the search and rescue stuff. So, is that something that you you would also think, or how is it possible to do all these different sports, as it were? Not, not all sports.
1: <laughs> I think it's absolutely possible. Yeah, um, I think we're talking about stimulus control, um, and I think if something is trained um, to fluency and it's under really good stimulus control, then. I don't think there's an issue. I mean, for instance, I mean, she, um, she doesn't, she, she, she doesn't search for people when we're off duty. She doesn't go running when we're out in the woods off leash. She doesn't go running to every single person and tell me about them and say, are they lost? Are they lost? Are they lost? Have you got my ball? She doesn't do that. <laughs> she doesn't do that when we're out just walking around and on a, on a walk. Um, so she recognizes that in that context, um, I'm not going to suddenly produce a ball if she goes and finds a person and comes back and tells me and asks me to follow her and says, Hey, there's a
0: person here. Hmm. So I guess, I guess I'm thinking maybe there's a difference because like, maybe not, maybe it's, maybe it's not with Labradors, but with Spaniels or with HBRs or with dogs that are bred to hunt before the shot and to go and they have a natural interest in finding that game and they find that inherently reinforcing in itself. Whereas. Yeah. Most dogs don't find running up to people, some do, um <laughs> inherently reinforcing. Um so if you if you're out hiking with your dogs,
1: do they do they um constantly go looking for birds to put in the air or constantly go looking for dead things to pick up and bring to you?
0: Yes, my HPRs probably would. Okay. Um Yes. Well, I think because I do find finding the game reinforcing in itself that most gun dogs probably are going to try and find, find the game, um, whereas they're not necessarily bred to find finding people re- reinforcing. So I can see why they wouldn't go running off to find a person if they knew that it, it wasn't a training scenario or there wasn't a reinforcer available from you if they found a person. And, sure. Do you see what I mean?
1: But equally... Um... You know, she's been trained to find dead bats and birds, but she doesn't, she doesn't go and um, find a dead bird and alert on it when I'm not in a conservation context, when I haven't asked her to go searching for it. She right. might go and roll in it. <laughs> right. yeah. um, she might go and eat something dead and disgusting, um, but she wouldn't go and, and point it out and say, hey, where's my ball, necessarily. So she recognises that I have not invited that behaviour, Not, um, you know, I've not given her the the green light that says right now your typical reinforcer, your ball, is available for this behaviour. So, yeah,
0: you can see her using the bird, as it were, in a different way depending on if she were out and you were not training, in which case it's just a thing to enjoy in itself, whether it's rolling on it or eating it or something or... Some dogs might retrieve it naturally because they enjoy retrieving things, but they're sort of enjoying it. It is the reinforcer versus the training scenario where she knows that interacting with the item in a specific way results in reinforcement from you. You do want the
1: job itself, the work itself to be, you know, the environmental conditions of the work itself to be reinforcing because you don't want the dog to to just be... Um, Doing that that task um, just for the payment, because sometimes, you know, certainly for search work, the 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 job itself can, can lasts a long time, and, and they have to have the stamina to 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 work for long periods of time. And if it was just for that payment, I am not sure how well that would maintain that behaviour. So, at some point, um, the searching itself must be reinforcing.
0: I did want to ask you about something that's going on where I live at the moment. This is changing the subject a little bit. But so we have in Jersey where I live, we have this invasive species called an Asian hornet, which has come up from the continent and it's been, it was all over the news for ages. And it, I think as the climate's changed, we seem to have acquired them from France somehow. And they obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but they eat bees and wasps and other. Insects okay. that, that we need. Um, the murder hornets. Is that what I they... think they might be called murder hornets where you are. Yeah. But yeah. so basically there have been a lot of, there's been local groups, community groups set up and people going out to try and find them and detect nests. And then they smoke the nests and they kill them when they find them. But it's so difficult to find them. Um, and so they've kind of tracked them. There's people who put little dots on them when they they put feeders out and they attract the hornets. And then when the hornets come and feed, they put a little dot on the hornet and then they follow or track that hornet back to the nest so they can find where the nest is. And then, ah, and all the time I've just been watching this develop and thinking, you know, wouldn't some well-trained dogs be able to do this? But then I wonder, would they? Because the nests are up in the trees and how easy is it going to be for the dogs to locate the nests? And is it possible? Is this possible? (laughs) Well...
1: Theoretically, anything with an odour a dog can can find. Um, but the practicality is whether or not the dog can tell you about that. As you say, dogs can't climb trees. So... But there are dogs out there that find things like um, koala bears, for instance, and um, other things that are up in trees. Um, so dogs can, you know, sort of alert at the base of the tree and give you an indication that somewhere in this tree is the thing that you are seeking they can also do the same things with things that are underground. So they don't necessarily have to be something that the dog can actually get complete access to or get their nose right on to be able to tell you that it's there. Uh, you'd need to think about safety. So are these hornets things that would you know, potentially attack what they would see as a threat? Um, you know, I had a request um, a while back for whether it was possible for um, dogs to find... Um, uh, snakes. Um, it was a, a species of snake that would have been uh, very dangerous to the dog if they'd have if they'd have found them. So it was like, yes, they could, but I don't think that's something I necessarily would want to train um, because it's all very well, you know, saying that you just want to find them when they're dormant, but you know, how, who's to say that? You know, we get back to this question about who's to say that um, if that odor was present when the snakes were up and about and I happened to be in an area where there was one, would the dog go, you know, would the dog go and explore that and go looking for that odour because it's something that's previously been reinforced. Um, And whilst I have a fair amount of confidence in, in being able to put things under stimulus control, would I want to risk that? And the answer, you know, would be no. (laughs) Mm. Right. Um, So, yeah, the answer to your question is yes. Dogs could definitely um if it's you know got an odor the dogs can definitely be trained to find it.
0: And what would the what would the ideal odor be? Would it be the hornet? Would it be the nest? Would it be the material inside the nest or the I don't know waxy honey stuff if they make any of that I don't know anything about asian hornets yeah. but what would the what would be the ideal substance?
1: I, this would be a, this would be a question I couldn't answer right now. I'd have to talk to the biologists, <laughs> the people that, um, yeah, I'd have to talk to the people that, that uh, you know, the entomologists that knew something about this um, particular species and could tell me all the ins and outs of that. We can't smell these things; that's half the trouble. So, you would probably want to to try some of you know a selection of these things, um, depending on what it is you are trying to. You know, are you trying to find the actual animal? Are you trying to find where they're... If you're trying to find the nest, then nest yeah, the material nest. might be yeah. might be the best thing. Um, you know, there are dogs out there already that I, you know, I know of um, finding bumblebee nests and using exactly that nest material. Hmm. Um, so that would probably, in this case, be the ideal thing. Um, and then you get into the question of, you know, do they... Do they abandon those nests and move on to other nests or do they die out uh, You know, in the winter? I don't know anything about this particular species um, because they not... seem to
0: go to sleep in the winter because okay. we stop hearing about them on Facebook. That's the only way I know about okay. this. And then they seem to just suddenly spring up again. Um, and there's a lot of concern about the time when the queens leave the nest to go and start new colonies. That's what they most want to prevent from happening. Um, I kind of feel like this is a bit of a losing battle, though. To be honest with these Asian hornets. I think they've kind of um, got a bit out of control now, but yeah, yeah, but it's interesting to know that there's ways that dogs could help. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I mean, there definitely are each, 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 that's why I like the conservation work so much because each project is so individual and so unique. um, And each one has its own challenges and it's its own kind of like, advantages and disadvantages and you have to think about so many different things you have to think about um you know you have to you have to learn you know a certain amount about the species that you're you're trying to track to figure out the best way um to be able to locate it and how to obtain the scent how to store the scent how to train the scent you have to you have to think about you know so many different things and so each one is a unique challenge. I quite, you know, that's one of the aspects about it that I really quite like.
0: And so your sort of organization is called Nose No Limit. Is that right? Uh-huh. That's correct. Yes. There's a no spout N-O-S-E, spell, N-O-S-E mm-hmm. which is very clever, no limit. And then, so the idea is that people approach you if they have a problem with an invasive species or something like that, which they would need your help with. And they sort of consult with you and you would tell them whether it's possible to to train dogs to do that? And would it then be your own dog that you would train or would you take on their dog to train and return to them? Or how, how does it work? We could do both. I mean, and thus far I've, I've just trained my dog to find things. Um, but potentially we could do both. So it sounds like it's quite new. Your like, knows no limit. Is that, it's been running a few years. Is that? Yeah, work? it's yeah.
1: a couple of years. So it is quite new. Um, and I've been collaborating with some other groups uh, that do this, um, so there are plans on the horizon to kind of work together and collaborate, um, which hopefully will will come to fruition in the next year or so. Um, yeah. But yeah, so so far I've kind of been working with um, you know conservation groups and academic institutions, um, and also um, you know also uh, businesses. So I mean, you know, the the wind turbine work was was kind of done. You know, under the, the kind of guiding eye, you know, watchful eye of um, the U.S. Um, fish and Wildlife, but it was you know you're really being paid and um, employed uh, by the company itself. You have to kind of um, uh, they're subject to the, their permits, and so you know they they have a, a need to to check that that their operations are not impacting the the natural environment too much.
0: It sounds very interesting. It sounds like it's going to be a massive field for the future as well. And it's just reading Ken Ramirez's book, The Eye of the Trainer, that if you've read it yet, have you you read it? I have, yes. Yeah, it's got some great accounts of conservation work in there. It's very exciting, like elephants and gorillas and things, it's very exotic. Um, But yeah, it sounds like this is a massive field which dogs can be used for going forwards into the future. It is potentially a, a massive field. Um, it really is. Yeah. Anyway, it's been really, really good to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time talking about all of this. Um, and yeah. So do you want to just give your website so that if people want to find out a bit more about you or knows no limit, then they can look you up online as it were.
1: Yes. Thank you. Um, it's, it's nose, N O S E no limit n o l i m
0: i t and that's all one word dot .com excellent well thank you very much for your time um and it was great to have you on the show yeah thank you very much thanks for inviting me it's been great thank you